Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. Jesus, or John wrote, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask His guidance and direction on our study. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can come to study Your Word. Your word, as David said, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in your light that we see light. Father, remind us that the most important thing in our lives is our relationship with you, and the most important aspect of that is our knowledge and application of your word, that we need to study your word that we might come to know you, and when we obey your word, that is an expression of our love for you and is the visible evidence before the angels and before people, that we do indeed love you with our whole heart. Father, we pray that as we study this morning and as we go through your word, that you would challenge us again with the importance of your word that, and be reminded that, as Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We pray this now in our Savior's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4, and we'll be down around verse 38. You might need to stick a piece of paper in there, hold your finger there as we will move around to various other passages this morning in order to pull together some of the ideas that are uh, embedded with this particular section. The last part of 2 Kings uh, chapter 4 focuses on two uh, more miracles that Elisha performs and there is a reason for this. Just as Jesus performed many miracles, uh, Elisha does, and neither of them did miracles just to be kind or good or helpful, uh, just to alleviate suffering or to solve a problem. Each miracle that is performed in the Scripture is a pedagogical tool. It is a visual aid to teach something about the character of God, the plan of God, the purposes of God, and so when we read about these miracles, we need to not just stop and say, well, isn't that a great sign of God's power, but think through the scriptures, the text, the context, what's going on, that we may come to understand why these miracles are, are, are performed. As you look at the overall scope of biblical history, there are basically three periods in the history of the human race where there seems to be just an outbreak of the miraculous. The first is this period we're studying right now, the period in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. 
Then the second period is the period during the time of the, our Lord's incarnation when he was on the earth, and then the, along with the apostles afterwards, and then, um, and then the, the next time will be when we see certain uh, miraculous things occurring during the tribulation period, especially under the ministry of those, those two uh, men who are called the two witnesses. So each time we see these, uh, this outbreak of the miraculous, it's important for us to stop and think about what is God trying to say, what's he demonstrating, what's he teaching, what are the lessons that we need to learn. Now, the lesson that covers this whole period that we're studying in Elisha is that of grace, the sufficiency of God's grace. We studied that last time, the doctrine of God's sufficiency in the Scripture, that is so clearly crystallized for us in the statement of the Apostle Paul in Second Second uh, Corinthians, that my grace is sufficient for you, that my power is made perfect in weakness, as God addressed uh, the Apostle Paul as he was praying for the removal of the suffering that came through the uh, thorn, was called the, uh, the, the thorn in the flesh, actually, that was an emissary, an angelos, they're an angel from Satan. So this was some sort of ultimately a demonically inspired uh, persecution against the Apostle Paul. And the Lord said, no, I'm not going to remove it, but this is an opportunity for my grace, the sufficiency of my grace to be demonstrated. So all through the Scriptures, there's this emphasis on the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, and yet there's hardly any doctrine in Scripture that is more misunderstood, more distorted, more confused than the grace of God. Grace means it's free. It's a gift. It, you don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. God, just from his own character, the goodness, the righteousness of his own ca- character, gives us something, and it, all we have to do is to accept it. There is nothing that human beings do in order to gain salvation or to, to get grace. We don't work for it. We don't earn it or deserve it, and yet that's the core of all religious systems is that somehow uh, mankind has to do something to motivate God. Somehow man has to do something to stimulate God. So God. Man has to do something in order to get God's approval, and somehow man adds to whatever it is that God is doing. And that just destroys the whole nature of salvation, the whole nature of grace. It corrupts it. It perverts it. It just completely dilutes it so that it is, it is no longer grace. And yet that pattern dominates human history. That is the predominant pattern of human thinking from the fall in Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to the end of the tribulation, except for, I believe, just a few, just a small percentage of the human race that do understand and respond uh, to the gospel message. Now, the Israelites in the Old Testament weren't any different from anyone else. They're not any different from modern Americans. They're not any different from people in any other culture. And they had difficulty understanding the grace of God. Some people think, well, they had all of these miraculous things that happened from the time that, that Moses brought them out of Egypt all the way through the, the miraculous provision of God every day where he provided them with the bread of heaven, the manna that came every single day, and the, as well as other provisions. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. They didn't need, that would have been terrible if you had, 
had any stock in Walmart or Target or anything like that. I mean, they just didn't need to go shopping. That would have been, that's probably hard on some of them. But uh, God provided everything, and that is the essence of, of, of grace. And yet they, they never learned that. And so every generation for them, as with us, we have to relearn the grace of God and reteach what unadulterated grace really means. And they had lost that in the generation under Ahab, this generation in the northern kingdom of Israel, as we are studying now, that there's just this complete breakdown, especially during the time of Ahab and the Amrid dynasty. Amri was Ahab's father, and so that those two or three generations of rulers in the north were referred to as the Amrid dynasty. And they ruled over the area that shaded there in purple, which is the the northern kingdom. This was the area where Elisha had his had his ministry, and it primarily focused in this area along here. You see a little bit of a, a topographical indication here, shading that this is the Carmel Ridge. Mount Carmel is located where the uh, Black Triangle is, but this is a ridge line that runs from uh, southeast to northwest. Just below it, you had the Kishon River, which actually had more water in it than it does today. Today, you stand up on the ridge, and you look down, and you go, I guess if it were to rain, there might be some water down there, but so much of it is bled off into irrigation that you, you, we, we lose the sense of, of what at one time seemed to have been a rather powerful uh, river, especially if there were uh, if there was a flash flood. Across the uh, this valley here, this huge valley that runs uh, southeast to northwest is the Jezreel Valley, also known as the Valley of Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, which is located here on the west side of the valley. Across the valley you have uh, Mount Mora, Mount Tabor, Mount Tabor, Mount Geboa. These are uh, very significant place, locations, in, especially in the book of Judges. But it is in this area, the, the uh, city of Samaria is located right uh, down here to the south of Mount Mora and to the west of Mount, uh, excuse me, not the city of Samaria, the city of Jezreel is located right down here. Samaria is the capital down here, Jezreel here. And so it's all through this area that we have these different incidents occur in the ministry of Elisha as he is challenging the people and teaching them through all of these different miracles about the sufficiency of God's grace. But the real problem that they faced in their culture the same pro- is the same problem we face in our culture, and it's the same problem that you and I fight all the time, and that is a problem that deals with our own volition, our own ma- decision-making process, and the decision to follow God consistently. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, as in our modern Western culture, there, there has been a massive rejection of God and choosing the culture of death. And that underlies all of these different miracles. There is something going on behind them relating to the culture of death. Now, this takes us back, if we're going to understand it properly, to a specifically one passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. But you could also go to uh, Joshua's parting uh, speech at the end of Joshua and other places in uh, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, where this challenge is set out to the nation to, eat, to make a choice, either follow God or follow the false gods 
follow man. And that's the same choice that is set before us. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, Moses says, See, I have set before you today life and good. If you're looking at a New American Standard translation, it says prosperity. That's not what the Greek, I mean, excuse me, what the Hebrew word says. The Hebrew word is tov, which is the basic Hebrew word for good. And so uh, the New King James is actually a superior translation at this point. See, I have set before you today life and good on the one hand, life and good on the one hand, and on the other hand, death and evil. So we see this contrast, this juxtaposition between life and death and between good and evil. And the good here is not the the moral relativistic good that any human being can perform, but it is good that is in accordance with the perfect righteousness of God. So uh, I often refer to this as divine good. It is a good that is produced in us through obedience to the Scripture and in the church age through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And when we are walking with God, Scripture says that we will experience uh, real life. Jesus said, I came not like a thief to destroy, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. The giving of life is salvation. The giving of abundant life comes as we grow and mature as believers. So we have that same choice set before us between life and good on the one hand and death and evil on the other. And the death there isn't necessarily physical death. There's seven different kinds of death in the Bible, and we can have a death-oriented culture that just produces corruption, it produces unhappiness, it produces an emptiness, a poverty of the soul, uh, it produces a culture that is rife with uh, violence, with civil disrespect and all of the other things, many of which we see in our own culture. That was what was happening in uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel at that time, and that is the background of many of these uh, miracles. And we recently looked at the... Uh, raising of the Shunammite son who had died, and in these two miracles, death uh, is and life are at the very center of these two miracles. So we might paraphrase this verse, that you have a choice every day. God gives you those options. Uh, uh, you can choose life and divine good on the one hand, or you can choose death, which is really self-destructive behavior, self-destructive decisions, self-induced misery, and... Uh, a human good, and sin on the other hand. Those are the options. Then in verse 16, Moses went on to say that he sets before them life and good, death, and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. What Moses is saying here is that the path to the choice of life and good is the path of loving God. Now, how do you love God? Do you love God by ginning up some sort of emotion through revivals, through music, through uh, what often happens today in too many church services is an emotional pep rally for Jesus, and everybody gets all all warmed up spiritually, and then they go home and 
run out of gas on the way home, but nobody ever learns anything, nobody ever matures, nobody ever grows up. It's just a lot of emotion and a lot of feel-good. It's very superficial. Everybody says the right things and hears the right words, but there's no real substantive spiritual growth. There's no substantive uh, study of the Scripture. And everybody talks about loving Jesus and loving God, but the Scriptures give us a very clear barometer, a very clear, I love the new modern, New, new term that's caught on this year. It's our metric for the spiritual life. Loving God is demonstrated through obedience. That's not legalism. That is a result of spiritual growth and loving God. If you love your parents, you obey them. If you love your spouse, you want to do that which pleases them, and that is consistent with what they what they ask of you. When we don't love someone, then we don't care what they think of us, and we don't care what they ask of us. We'll do whatever we want to do, and and to heck with whatever they say. So what Paul, I mean, what Moses emphasizes here is that loving the Lord your God is directly uh, related to and directly proportional to keeping His commandments his statutes, and his judgment. Jesus said the same thing in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And and First John, John says the same thing, that if you love the Lord, you will keep his commandments. It's just said over and over and over again in Scripture. So that means that before you can know uh, or obey God's commandments, you have to know God's commandments. And we're not talking about the Ten Commandments here. We're not talking about the Mosaic Law. We're talking about all of the different imperative constructions that are given throughout the New Testament, throughout the epistles, related to the uh, Christian life, the prohibitions and the mandates that we find there. And by if we love the Lord, we have to first learn what he has said. That means we have to make a make Bible study a priority because you can't obey God if you don't know what God wants. And then we have to learn how to think because it's not just something superficial. It's not we're just going to kind of clean up the outside of the cup and leave the inside dirty. We need The change needs to come on the inside because it is a change that is generated by God the Holy Spirit as he takes the word of God that we learn and he uses that in order to produce spiritual growth in our lives and a spiritual change. So basically what Paul, I mean what Moses, I don't know why I keep wanting to say Paul this morning. What Moses says here, if we, if I paraphrase it, is that the key to option A, which is life, or B, which is death, is learning the Bible so that you can love God. Love for God is evidenced by thinking like God living as God would have you to live. And that only comes by keeping his word, not the Ten Commandments. Uh, So we show that we love him, and God will then bless us. There's blessing that is associated with our spiritual life and spiritual growth. Then Moses goes on to say, but if your heart turns away, this is option B, death. If your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and are drawn away, and worship other gods, and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land when which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. See, that first phrase, if your heart turns away, focuses on volition. It's your decision. Which way are you going to choose to go? The cho- choice of life, the choice of death. 
If your heart turns away from life so that you do not hear, that is, you don't take the time to study the Word, you don't take the time to uh, come to Bible class three times a week. Sometimes you can't. You need to live stream. I understand that. But there's an importance that the Scripture gives to the body of believers coming together as a group. It encourages other people. Uh, just a, a simple um, illustration of that, I remember back in the... Uh, this was six or seven years ago. Every year, Chafer Seminary has a pastor's conference, and we met the last couple of times in Southern California. That was hard for a lot of people to, to, to get to, a lot of pastors. In fact, I know of one pastor who doesn't like to fly, and he just didn't have the time to drive across the country to Los Angeles and back every year, so, so he never came. And there were many others that never came. And our, the, this, the pastor's conference had been going on for uh, almost uh, 30 years. It began as a National Teaching Pastors Conference back in 1974, and at times it had been much, much larger. But in, in the early years of 2000, 2003, 2004, it just diminished until there were, there were only about, I think there were, of the nine board members that were, the nine board members were there and about 20 people from uh, Dr. Meisinger's church and maybe about 10 other people. And the board looked at each other. We were so discouraged just because nobody was there. There was nobody. And we remember times when there, it was very lively and there were people there in great discussions and everything. And then the next year, we, uh, things happened. They couldn't have it in California. We started hosting it here. And people came in and we had 150 people here during the day, 140, something like that, 200 or so at night. And people were just encouraged by that, by just the opportunity to see other believers, recognize, hey, we're not out here alone, uh, but there are others that, that are there. And you come to Bible class, uh, and there's five people there. You're not as encouraged as you are when you come to Bible class, and there's 500 people there. And that doesn't have anything to do with emotion. It's not putting your emphasis on numbers. It's just a part of what what encourages us because we see that there are other other folks who believe like we do. Now, if you're out there and you have to live stream, you have to listen, you can't be here. I understand that. That's not a problem. But if you can, you should be here. That's important. It's part of our uh, part of our spiritual life. The choices we make related to hearing. James says that we need to uh, not be just a hearer but a doer also. What he means by that is you don't just listen to the word and fill up your uh, notebook with doctrines and notes and stick it on the shelf or in your file cabinet or on your computer, but you apply what you learn. So if the pastor is teaching about grace, you go home and you try to be grace-oriented. If you're, the topic is on prayer and you should pray without ceasing, you try to be more conscientious in your prayer life. If the topic is on uh, the spiritual life or spiritual walk or the importance of Bible study, then you try to apply that and be more consistent and and taking in the Word of God. So that's what it means to be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. So Moses said, if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away because you let things distract you, you're like the two of the soils in the parable of the soils that uh, allow thorns and thistles and the details of life to come up and choke out the message of the gospel, and so that you don't hear, you're drawn away, and you worship other gods and serve them. Well, we don't go down to the local temple of Baal 
and uh, engage in cultic ritual in order to try to uh, motivate the gods to make us prosperous. But we do a lot of other things in order to focus on material prosperity rather than focusing on the Lord in order to uh, somehow get what we want to have to be, have a comfortable lifestyle rather than putting our priority on the Word of God. And that's what they were doing at their time. We have more abstract idols of the mind. But as Paul says in Colossians 3, greed is idolatry. And so we need to anything we need to know that anything we worship or anything we put our attention and focus on that has a higher priority than the study of God's word is idolatry. So the results he announces in verse 18. I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. In other words, even if you're a believer, you're not going to lose salvation, but you're going to lose the quality of life. There will not be, there will not be ha- real happiness and joy and stability in your soul. And uh, the Psalms talks about the fact that God answered the prayers of the Israelites in the, in the wilderness, and he sent them bread, but he sent leanness to their souls. And that's a key lesson is that we can have all of the material things, wonderful family, all the great details of life, but if our relationship with the Lord is not at the center, then what that brings is not anything that has a lasting value. It brings a leanness to the soul. And so we could paraphrase these two verses as uh, Moses saying, but if you do not decide to make your relationship with God, your knowledge of, the, of his word, obedience to his word, your highest priority. And if you get distracted by career, pleasure, money, drugs, lust, and other details of life so that they are more important to you than God, then you will certainly be miserable. You'll never find out what you are looking for, and whatever you have will never satisfy you. That's the paraphrase in terms of application. And then at the end, Moses said, I call upon heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Now, when he calls upon heaven and earth, he's not calling upon the physical material a ground, uh, it is inanimate, it doesn't witness anything. He, neither is he calling upon just the empty space of heaven and the stars and the galaxies to be a witness. He is. This is really a circumlocution, a figure of speech for talking about the inhabitants of these two spheres, the inhabitants of the heavens or the angels, the inhabitants of the earth or mankind, people. So he's having two witnesses. Scripture says that things are confirmed by two or more witnesses. And so the two witnesses that are called upon to witness this this restatement of the Mosaic Covenant are the angels and mankind, so that everything that Israel was to do was done before the angels and other human beings. They were to be a testimony, a witness. They were, their lives were to be an evidence of the grace of God. The same thing is true for us. We are living our lives before the angels and before other people as a visible witness and testimony to the grace of God. So we can paraphrase this as 
Uh, your lives stand as a visible witness to these realities. The angels are watching. People are watching. Your life will illustrate God's blessing or judgment. So choose today to live so that you and your descendants will be blessed by God. Your life will demonstrate whatever you've chosen. You can come to church. You can be in Bible class three times a week. You can have a uh, shelves full of doctrinal notes, files full of doctrinal notes. You can uh, talk all the jargon and have it all down. But our lives will demonstrate over the course of those three score and ten years that we get, or maybe more, whether God has blessed us or judged us, whether our life reflects the glory of God and his grace or not, and that some total will be clear by the time we reach our our end game, and God takes us uh, to heaven to be with him. And so it, it will be evident. Did we choose life or did we choose death? Well, at this time in their history, Israel had chosen death. And that's the problem. They've chosen the path of paganism. They have chosen the path of human viewpoint. And they had sown the seeds of death through their negative volition. And as a result, they had reaped a culture of corruption. And so the northern kingdom was under divine discipline. They've gone through droughts. They've gone through famines. They've gone through defeats, military defeats in various battles with their enemies, uh, the Arameans or the Syrians. And yet it just continues. There is no turning back to God. They do not have not responded to all of the challenges that were brought to them by Elijah. So Elisha has come along, and Elisha is demonstrating the same truths, but from a different perspective. He is focusing more on the positive, less on the challenge, less on the negative, the judgment. And so God is showing through Elisha, that he could and still would give them life, just as he had promised under, under Moses, that he would give them life. Did they deserve it? No. Had they been disobedient? Yes. Had they been grossly dis- disobedient and just perverse in all of their uh, religious idolatry, child sacrifices, sexual immorality, all of those things? Of course they had. They did not really want God. They just wanted religion. They just wanted the good things in life. And so God is continuing to show them that, number one, they're experiencing death on a day-to-day basis in their culture, and the only solution is the solution of life. And so the first episode here takes place in verse verse 38. It's rather simple to understand. Elisha has returned to Gilgal, which is down near Samaria. This is not the Gilgal where they set up the stones to <clears throat> commemorate their crossing of the Jordan or where the Israelites were, for, that were circumcised once they came into the land. This is a, another Gilgal as we studied. There was a famine in the land. Once again, a reminder of death, a reminder of the judgment of God because In the Mosaic Law, God had said that there were five different stages of discipline he would take the nation through if they were disobedient to him, and one of these was famine. So as soon as you read that, you need to be thinking divine discipline. They are are negative to God. They are uh, disobedient to God, and God is bringing judgment upon them. And we're told the sons of prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant. Now notice who this is. This isn't 
the prophets of Baal. This isn't the prophets of uh, the Asherah. This, these are the sons of the prophets. These are the, the these are the priests. These, these are probably the only group of positive believers that are, uh, really have any kind of impact in the northern kingdom. They were, uh, the students, the followers of Elisha, uh, and, <clears throat> and this had been established, the school of the prophets had been established by Elijah, uh, before him. And so they're sitting before him, and he says to a servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So he's, he's in charge. He knows what's going on and he understands, uh, what is about to happen. And he, so one of the, uh, one of the men went out in the field, gathered, uh, various herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds. Came, sliced them up in the pot of stew, thinking that this would make it better. They're, they're starving. They don't have much food. This is going to help. And they uh, cooked that and began to serve it. And when they did, they immediately began to react to it. Uh, rec- and their, their bodies recognized that this was harmful, this was poison. And they cried out to him, Man of God, there's death in the pot. And they couldn't eat it. So we have an environment of death that comes in the environment of divine discipline. This is also a picture for us of what happens in someone's life when they are uh, divorced from God in terms of being out of fellowship. It is uh, carnal death we talk about sometimes uh, in the Scripture. There is a uh, result of our disobedience. There is not fellowship with God, and so there is uh, death in the pot, and they could not eat it. So um, Elisha says, well, bring some flour. Well, what is flour? Flour is what you use to make bread. And in the next section, the next episode, there's going to be uh, the emphasis on the bread, the 20 loaves of barley bread. Bread in the Scripture is often used as a picture of God's provision of his word. Jesus said, men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so the use of flour here is is a depiction of the fact that that which restores life, that which changes the circumstances of a culture of death, is only the word of God. And so he brings flour, he sprinkles the flour in the pot, and then they can eat, and it's not harmful. It doesn't uh, doesn't produce death. And so they are then able to eat. So this is going to uh, bring to our attention the doctrine of eating. Not what we did last night. This is something different. This is the spiritual doctrine of eating, and I w- want to focus on this. There is an emphasis in the Scripture of eating in relationship to God. And so the first place I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles is Exodus chapter 24. We're going to pop through about five passages, but we're going to just get a summary. We're not going to hit every single place, but we're going to hit enough to where we catch the main idea that we find in Scripture in relationship to eating. Now, in in, uh, Exodus 24... We have a scenario, scenario after, this is after the, after the exodus, this is after the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and Moses is 
commanded by God to come back up on the mountain and to bring his leadership uh, team with him. He is to bring Aaron, uh, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they are to worship God uh, from afar. But only Moses was then to come near to the Lord, and those instructions are given in verse 2. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came, told the people all the words of the Lord, all the judgments, and the people answered with one voice, and they said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. I sort of think this is an emotional response of the moment. Uh, they, they, they've just gone through an incredible scenario where God has spoken to them. They've heard the law, and, of course, they're saying, Okay, we will obey it. The reason I say it's just a short-term emotion is it's not long before they're, um, they're going to be uh, disobeying, disobeying God, but that's another Another story. So Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar on the foot of the mountain uh, with 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings, sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. This is comparable for us to confession of sin. It is a picture of the need of the people to be sanctified or cleansed from sin before they, the leaders go to the mountain to uh, worship uh, to worship God. And so verse 6, Moses took half the blood, put it in basins, the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and again they confirmed that all that the Lord said we will do and we will be obedient. So this is a, this is a remarkable and critical moment in Israel's history because it is the first real covenant confirmation uh, ceremony. And so following that, Moses uh, go, does what the Lord says to do, and he and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel go up on the mountain, and they come up, and uh, Moses goes up to the presence of God, described it's under his feet, as it were. There was a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. That reminds us of the image that we see of heaven in, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Uh, then in verse 12, the Lord uh, commands Moses to come up on the mountain where he will give him the tablets of stone and give the commandments and everything. And then Moses goes up with his assistant Joshua. And Moses went up on the mountain and uh, skipping down to verse, or I skipped over verse 11. Verse 11 is a key verse. Yet, but on, yet the nobles, he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Uh, New King, that's from the New American Standard. New King James says, uh, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. So they come into the presence of God, and what do they do? They have a party. They have a banquet. They eat and they drink. This is not just they didn't have ice water. You know, we'll see that in other places. They enjoyed wine and strong drink, which uh, is really barley beer. I used to always uh, make the point that when Jesus just accommodated himself to the plebeian taste of the masses, he gave them wine at the at the uh, wedding at Cana. But in the Old Testament, when God wanted a drink, he wanted a beer. Because the Hebrew word for a strong drink offering means barley beer. So next time you're rubbing shoulders with a Legalistic Baptist, you can always bring that up. <laughs> so they had a 
celebration. It is a picture of their communion, their fellowship with God. And that's the same thing that we see when we get into the New Testament with the Lord's table. We call it communion because it is a picture of our fellowship with God, our positional fellowship based on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, at the cross. And so as they are uh, coming in this, this, this whole covenant confirmation ceremony, uh, and it is like signing a peace treaty or signing a contract, they would celebrate by having a feast or a banquet, and they came up in the presence of the Lord and they ate and drank. So eating and drinking is really a picture of our fellowship with God and the joy and celebration of that. Now the next place we'll go is in Psalm 22, passage I read this morning. Uh, when uh, for our scripture reading, Psalm 22, as I stated then, is the uh, chapter that is quoted by the Lord when he is on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you look at the first part of the of the chapter, there are various verses that that uh, foreshadow and speak of, prophesy of the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 16 and 17, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. See, they didn't even have crucifixion at the time of David. So he is speaking of this in a prophetic way. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Uh, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See, this is all fulfilled at the cross. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, there is a view, which I don't know why it wouldn't be true. Uh, They didn't have uh, chapter divisions in the Old Testament. They didn't have Psalm 21, Psalm 1, Psalm 5, Psalm 23. They didn't have chapter divisions. They Chapters were known by their by the first line. That's what you have today, even in the Roman Catholic Church. Whenever the Pope makes a statement, it's always referred to by the first two or three words. That's its title. Just like in the Bible, Genesis is called in the beginning. It's not called uh, Genesis, or actually that comes from the Latin. It means the same thing, but it's in the beginning. It's the first word in, in the Hebrew. And so this psalm was titled by the first verse, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so there are uh, many who are uh, understand more about Hebrew culture uh, think that when Jesus, when it says in the gospel that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he is not just quoting that verse, he is quoting this psalm. And it is this psalm that is uh, giving him courage in the midst of his adversity as he's bearing the sins of the world, specifically verses like uh, 19 through 21. So as we look at this and we read on down, we come to verse uh, we come to verse 20, uh, Psalm 22:26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. This is in the section of the psalm that is a declarative praise of how the Lord has delivered the one who was pierced and who was rejected uh, earlier in the psalm. And so in sign of praise, in sign of thanksgiving, then those who are afflicted will come together and eat, they'll be satisfied, and they will praise the Lord. So there is a important, I almost hate to tell you all this, 
knowing this congregation, that a vital element of praising God is coming together, like we did last night, to eat and to celebrate, and that that is a key element in, in worship. And we don't want to get carried away with that, but that is a key element in worship. Now, another passage, which is a one that has millennial implications related to the kingdom, is in Isaiah chapter uh, 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy. See, it's free. You don't have to purchase it. It's, it's related to the gospel. He who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. This isn't grape juice. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And so the, the, the kingdom is, is presented here as a place where uh, mankind will freely fellowship with God in eating and drinking and celebration uh, in the kingdom. This was clearly seen in, in other extra-biblical Jewish literature emphasized the fact that when the Messiah came, that it would be characterized by an, an enormous feast initiated by the Messiah, and the Messiah would then bring food to his people and would supply all of their, all of their physical needs. In verse 2 and 3, we go on to read, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. See, they're choosing death, not life. Spending money for what is not bread, that which will not satisfy their soul. Your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me, God says. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear. Come to me. Listen. What did Moses say? Hear. James says, don't be a hearer, but also a doer. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. So the Messiah is going to bring in the kingdom, and there is going to be a celebration that is related to sitting down and eating at a banquet, eating and drinking and celebrating. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, reflects back upon the, uh, the uh, Exodus generation. And again, we see the emphasis on food and drink. Uh, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed all through the sea. That's the Exodus event. All were baptized, that is, identified with Moses in the, by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. And all ate the same what? Spiritual food. That was the manna. It was a spiritual food, the food from God, the, the bread of angels. And what? They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So you see that all through the Scriptures, there's this emphasis on God providing food, nourishment for us in a physical way that is used then as a picture of the fact that he is the only one who can sustain us and nourish us uh, spiritually and to provide uh, to provide that for us, and so this is a picture that we have in as we come to uh, look at this episode in second Kings chapter four of uh, the the food that is made uh, made whole so that it can provide life. but see one of the other passages that 's so important here is a recognition of what Jesus said. See, they, they've chosen death in Israel, and now Elisha is showing them that God can provide life. This foreshadows the message of Jesus. John four fourteen. 
Jesus said, But whoever drinks of the water that, that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. God is the one who can bring life out of death. And then John 5:24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. John 6:47. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And then in the next verse, he said, I am the bread of life. Now, that sets us up for the last miracle in the chapter, because in the next uh, next episode, there's going to be a problem of a lack of food in the famine and a lack of bread, and there's a 20, 20 loaves that are available, and Elisha commands that they be passed out among the multitude, and it will be like the miracles of Jesus, and that when he fed the 5,000. And that's the background for his statement here in John 6, 47 and 48, that where he says, I am the bread of life. That's what we'll look at when we come back next Sunday. But the choice is yours. Just as Moses said, God has set before us life and death. He has set before us the good and evil. What's your choice? What's your daily choice? Have you done what uh, Joshua said when he set the same command before Israel? He said, choose ye this day whom you will serve as for me and my house we will serve the Lord. That is the issue. We have to make that decision every single day. Are we going to put our emphasis on the Lord? Are we going to make a priority of eating on his word, feeding on his word? Are we going to follow the path of life? Or are we going to choose the details of life and human viewpoint and choose the path of death? God's grace has provided us with what we need for life, everything through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we're thankful that we have such clear teaching from your word on all these particular issues, especially that we can come to understand what real life is. That life comes through a relationship through Jesus Christ. It's not based on accomplishments. It's not based on possessions. It's not based on personal pleasure or personal fulfillment. It is based on our orientation to your grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty. There's no longer reason for guilt. There's no longer reason for sorrow. There's no longer a reason for you to think that somehow you can do something to impress God. Jesus has already done that. He paid the price on the cross so that the debt of sins have been canceled. Right now, right where you sit, if you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you are instantly saved. God the Father knows what you believe, what you're trusting in. He will impute to you the perfect righteousness of Christ, and you will be justified. You will be given eternal life. You will be a new creature in Christ, and all of these blessings will be yours forever. Father, we pray that you challenge each of us with what we have studied today, that we might not forget it in the busyness of our schedules and the life around this time of year, but that we might recognize that we have to make a choice every day, and that choice is either the choice of life or the choice of death. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.